Hey everyone, welcome to the Engage and Equip podcast, a resource designed to help form substantive disciples for the local church. I'm Nick Gibson. I'm going to be interviewing Inga Hoffman and Andrew Knox. They're two members of High Point Church, both medical doctors in different subfields. And they were both part of a cohort that we did that was part of the John Stott Award for Pastoral Engagement, that specifically focused on engaging people in your church who work in the hard sciences and in medicine and things like that, and to talk about something related to creation. This year, the uh, the focus was on human personhood and what it means to be made in the image of God. We've got a series coming up, or has already started, depending on when this comes out, on that topic. And so we had to read two books, Being Human by Rowan Williams and Theological Anthropology, A Guide for the Perplexed by Mark Cortez. And we did a short, like 40-minute lecture course by Michael Matheson Miller, who will be in a later podcast and will be a guest speaker during our series. But welcome, guys. Welcome, Andrew. Thanks. And Inga, we're so mm-hmm. glad you're here. Thanks for having us. Yeah. Yeah. So um, can you guys say a little bit about like your vocations and your history at HBC? So like, how did you become what you are? What are, what are you like medically and vocationally? And then how did you end up at High Point Church? Sure. So I am a child neurologist. Um, I'm on faculty at University of Wisconsin here. Been here for about five years now. Um, just my career path, I actually started as a computer engineer and then through God's work and through a variety of things, got sidetracked into a different calling, a career in medicine. Uh, you know, that's sort of a long course to get to where I am now. So it was in Chicago for a while, then in Cincinnati for a while doing residency in a fellowship. And then uh, came here for my first real job. So we've been part of High Point for pretty much that whole time and have loved it. And um, your wife, Laura, is one of our worship band leaders. She has dark yes. black hair, tall, thin, Yep, plays piano. She's beautiful. So, yeah. I, I, I'm just letting you say that. So yeah. So uh, Andrew, thank you. That's helpful. And so Inga, what about you? So I'm Inga Hoffman. I'm the uh, director of the Pediatric Bone Marrow Transplant Program here, also at the University of um, uh, Wisconsin in Madison. I also arrived here about uh, five and a half years ago mm-hmm. from Boston. I spent 11 years there at Boston Children's Hospital, got my fellowship training there and uh, experienced a very different, uh, how should I say, academic uh, lifestyle and lifestyle in Boston. We're really excited to be here in Madison and that's been a great move for our family. We also pretty much have been at High Point Church um, since the very beginning of mm-hmm. our move and um, have our whole family here. Yeah. Yeah. And your husband, Mike, is in business. That's correct. Yeah. He at is, first he was he was a man he was in management, right? And then he didn't he start his own company during the pandemic? Yes, he started his own company, I think now about three years ago. Um, so a little bit before the pandemic and um, a lot of his things in company focus on supporting pediatric rare diseases. Um, oh neat. So great. That's cool that you can work together like that. Um, somewhat. Okay. So can you guys kind of explain a little bit about how you experienced the grant? like as an engagement for you guys. Um, we had a focus group that you were part of that met five times over five months. And um, it was designed to try to integrate theology and science relative to human personhood, right? So like, what was what was that like for you? You want to tell us a little bit about, about that? Yeah, I think it was such a great opportunity to actually start to connect with people within the church that I didn't even know existed. Mm-hmm. So my, probably the, 
most favorite thing was just connecting with others, learning about the different um, strengths and gifts that are within the church and within the medical or scientific profession and seeing those different perspectives and angles from how where everybody is working, um, what they are doing in the community and and bringing those gifts and talents and perspectives to the church as well. I yeah. would say that was by far my favorite part, uh, and and it was just beautiful to to kind of geek out a little bit about some of the things that we think is normal talk every day, yeah. and 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 have a faith based community to connect about these topics. Yeah, yeah, our group was pretty doctor heavy, right? There were like yeah. eight or nine people, and we had maybe four or five doctor with five doctors maybe yep and then a psychologist and a mm-hmm. psychology student and then we had a groundwater geologist and jeremy was a little <laughs> like i don't know why i'm here but this is kind of fun you know so that i thought it was a i thought it was a really good group yeah i i loved it i had thought probably for a year or two before we did this actually that it would be I would very much enjoy getting together with other medical professionals and talking Mm -hmm. about some of these questions about personhood. You know, I do neurology, so there's a lot of thought there about like, okay, how do brains interact with who we are as people? How do those things come together? Mm -hmm. How does what I know about neuroscience inform my Christian faith? And how does my Christian faith inform what I think is true or not true about neuroscience? So it was, yeah, fantastic to start to have some of those discussions with other people. Yeah. It was interesting for me to see how these different folks had or hadn't integrated their faith. Right. Cause, cause like, I think you've spent a lot of time trying to like figure out, like you're interested in apologetics related to this mm-hmm. and field. And then other ones, they were other doctors, like they had developed a lot spiritually and they developed a lot medically, but not necessarily like together. Right. They were like, they knew what their job was and they did that and they did it with integrity. Mm-hmm. And then they did their spiritual stuff. Right. And it was interesting to see like how they were like every person, because I think like, well, they're a doctor, they're a Christian, so they should think like this, like in my mind. Mm-hmm. And it turned out that everybody was different. Right. And I was like, oh, I guess they're all different. Right. And they've all had different experiences. They've all read different books. They've all thought of different problems that they were interested in. You know what I mean? Yeah. And they've all kind of rationalized through their mind how they put stuff together in different ways. And I was like, okay, this is... This is more diverse than I was expecting. Yeah. I thought that was really interesting too. And one of the actually large things I took away from this experience that similarly, I think I'd kind of assumed like, okay, you know, people think about these things in similar ways. And then I realized as we got into conversations that there are like whole big chunks of how I think about these problems that other people don't think about them in that way because they don't have a background in computer engineering or neurology yeah. or any of that stuff. So I, that was really useful just to see the diversity of ways of looking at this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think part of it too is the grant was designed because it's, it's, a, it's a pastoral engagement grant. It's not like a make doctors happy grant, right? <laughs> right? And so part of it was they were trying to make me sit there and listen to you. You know, like get the get these people who work in science together. And I, the reason they do the grant is because they're like pastors don't know enough science and because of that they say all kinds of really unscientific silly things mm-hmm. and they don't really because of that they don't really serve well the people in their church that are in the sciences and so we're going to make you sit and listen to them by paying for really good food and you know have you do this you know and so i found that really helpful you know that's great yeah, yeah. i mean i have never really felt like you slight the sciences there always seems to be a good representation of how people are thinking about things in psychology and just other academic fields as well. Mm -hmm. So when you said that at the beginning, I thought, 
I don't know if this money is like accomplishing what they wanted it to because Nick's already doing this. But it was I'm I'm well, glad to hear it you, was useful for you. Because because one of the things that Andrew got to do that Inga didn't get to do was to go to the the two days at Trinity where we got together with all the other churches in the grant. Mm-hmm. And I I sort of felt that way about the whole thing. It was like they subselected a group of pastors. <laughs> like I think of the six pastors, there were only like two or three that didn't have earned PhDs. Yeah, and some of them in like sub science kind of related well not no most of them were like theology but they were like they'd read a lot of these books and i was kind of like i'm not sure this is solving the problem i don't think the problem pastors are here you know what i mean like (laughs) right right i did think that too that being said you know those two days still seemed full of fruitful conversation so yeah but it felt like the varsity team getting better at their sport yeah, to me, maybe. yeah. But I listen. I, I, it was very. They've been very generous with us. I really, and I think that the churches are all going to do really great series. So, all right, let's start with Inga on this one. So, um, what do you think about, um, like, do you, do you see any like benefit or possibilities or whatever relative to churches existing in a place like Madison, like just better integrated in like science or scientists? to the body of Christ, either like our understanding of science and faith or being more hospitable or caring or of science, people vocationally in the sciences in the church. Yeah, no, this is a great question. And I think it comes down to the the very fundamental concepts, right? We think about as a body of Christ in the Mm -hmm. church, we all have different gifts, talents, vocations that we express that giftedness in. And, um, and, you know, we happen to be in science and um, there's people in in businesses in the church and in different sectors of industries. And I think all of them are important, um, especially in our days. Well, they always have to be important and bringing them together and exploring what each of them brings uh, to the church community, to the local church community, but also obviously to our communities um, where we live and where mm-hmm. we serve. So um, I think that is a that is a key factor because um, um, as scientists or as physicians, we might you know think about things from a different angle. Um, but I also think you said something really important earlier that um, there is a part of us that we go through in our sort of development in our careers, right? We develop that traditional trajectory of our career. We, we you know, we study, we, we execute that intellectual function mm-hmm. very, very strongly. Yeah. And one has to be careful not to neglect that spiritual aspect. And I think that's actually a big part where the church comes in. Um, and it always starts with asking good questions because the better questions we ask in life, the better answers we get and the better mm-hmm. the quality of our life is. So asking good scientific questions, whether they are, um, you know, from scientists or not, uh, or is a church and bringing them back to what is actually foundational here in scripture what does scripture inform us? And also what does it not inform us about? Mm-hmm. And be mindful that all that we learn, um, we have to, as a person of faith, for me, it's important to continue examining to put that through my biblical lens. Mm-hmm. Um, because we we very clearly see our limitations out on the job, so to speak, right? Yeah. Out in the field when we work with people. Science is only as good as it is today. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. But God and the Holy Spirit has all the answers. Yeah. Okay. So let me ask. Let me ask you. It's like a different question, a slightly different way. So Inga, let's say 
um, you were the associate pastor for the week, and your job was to give spiritual care and leadership to only parishioners in the hard sciences. So I like gave you a list. Okay, you here are the hundred people at High Point that are in the hard sciences in some way or another. They're either they're either practitioners of a field strongly influenced by the highest hard sciences like medicine or counseling or something like that, or they literally are like working in a lab coming up with a vaccine or something like that. Right. You, when you go visit these people, like what are some of the questions you ask? What are some of the, the, the needs you think you might, you're going to bump into? Yes. I think asking this very basic questions, what are their needs? Having an actual understanding how, how our day, their day mm-hmm. looks like on a daily basis. I think most people don't have a good concept of mm-hmm. what we do. And, um, that basic understanding also, um, already informs and helps understand, oh, their life looks this way. Therefore, you know, that's, that's maybe how we can incorporate in the church, um, or not. So, so uh, let me ask this way. So like, let's say you're going to do that. What do you think you're going to find out? You're, they're going to be like, we're, well, I'm running from day till night. I do my job for eight hours and then I have two hours of paperwork. And or, like, what do you think you would hear from folks? So the, so in, the reason I'm asking this is, so there's other people who are listening to this who go to church with folks in the sciences. So like if they meet a person who's a, med- a medical doctor or a, what, like, there's certain like assumptions they're going to be like, okay, okay. So like what, so for me, I, I'm like, okay, probably works long hours. Right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, everybody thinks they're wealthy, but they're still paying off a quarter to a half million dollars in debt. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. They, um, you think that they can write you a prescription for like Xanax, but they, this is not the medicine they practice. Right. Yeah. Everybody wants something from them. Um, cause they think they have money or, or, you know, if yeah. you're going to make a nonprofit board or something like that, they want people like this. Yep. So they get asked to do a bunch of things that they don't have time for. So I usually am like, this person is busy. I need to I need to support them, not ask for things from mm-hmm, them mm-hmm. because this is what their lifestyle is like. Yeah. Like, what would you, do, what do you respond to that? What do, you, what do you guys think about that? Or does it really depend on... I, the- so, uh, okay. So, <laughs> yes, this group of people is busy. Yeah. Um, but I think, you know, their needs are fundamentally the same as anyone others needs to. Okay. Right. So yeah. it's not like they don't need human relationships because they're a scientist or they're perfect parents because they right. studied biology. Right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so it's good yeah. to know. But I mean, probably in my mind, the two things that are useful to know that might be different from everyone else and maybe not is a that they're probably pretty busy mm-hmm. and B, since they're in the hard sciences, they probably have some natural underlying skeptic bent where you're like, okay. okay, show me that that's true. Let's not just assume that that thing is true. Right. That's probably the two ways the group is a little bit different. And other than that, I don't know. I think they're not that different from other people. Yeah. I think, I, so, okay, you probably don't feel like saying this about yourself would be humble, but I, there are also certain sub-segments of people that they're just, they are, they're going to be smart. And there's certain ways that you are friends with, you pastorally lead relatively smart and educated people. These are people who are intelligent and we've invested a lot in their education. So when somebody like a pastor says something that's like clearly false, (laughs) right? Like, or it's just like, it's uneducated or whatever. It's kind of like, so like, for example, when I use biological illustrations, like Mm -hmm. I spend 10, 12 minutes longer looking at some things, making sure what I'm going to say is actually correct. Yeah. Like if I'm going to talk about like in like a, a GI track, um, like parasite. Right. I'm going to look a little longer and make sure what I say is correct <laughs> because I know Amy Helansky is going to tell me again. I want her to tell me if I got it wrong. You know what I mean? Right. And so I feel like when I pastor, 
So there's two things I do in my preaching. One is I try to make sure what I say is correct when I talk about the sciences. Yeah. And then two, I, there's three things actually I do. The two, I ask for feedback from people in those fields. Mm-hmm. So I say, hey, if I say something stupid in your field, first of all, send an unsolicited email to me. Secondly, and I will not take it negatively. But then secondly, I may send you an email and say, if you have any time, comment on this sentence. And then if I get something back, I get something back if I don't know. Right. Yeah. And then the, th- the third thing is I try to make a certain portion of my sermon get a little more complicated that I know the average person is just not going to get it all. Yeah. But that it's like, it, it like, like there's some kind of question where the skeptic is like, you're not going to deal with this, are you? And then I go, no, I'm going to deal with it. Now we're not going to spend 30 minutes on it, right. but I'm going to spend two minutes on it. And I'm at least going to comfort you that I thought about this while I was writing my sermon yeah. so that you know. Yeah. You know what I mean? And yeah. I feel like you got to do that or like everybody above a certain intelligence after a while is just kind of like, I'm just not going to find answers to my questions because questions that people have end up radiating out from the, like the intelligence and education level that they're functioning at, what they've read, what they've interacted with. And if mm-hmm. you, so people who've read a lot and learned a lot, they have this whole basket full of questions that most people do not even know exist. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so I feel like as a pastor, if you can, you know, like showing them that you care about that is important. Yes. And that's part of what this grant is for, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And you do a good job of that, I think. Um, and I know many people in this church appreciate that. I think people in the church, if you say something that's a little off the tracks from a scientific perspective, mm-hmm. they'll probably forgive you. Yeah. It's probably a larger concern for people who are outside of the church you know, who right. are maybe listening to what you're saying, who have a science background and are yeah. like, they are more likely to turn off because of those sorts of things. Yeah. That's being, I think it speaks to another important component. I think that is a huge challenge for people in the scientific community. Um, and that is the, um, the tension uh, or the perceived tension and discrepancy with our scientific world and how it functions in a broken world and our sort of spiritual well-being, right? There's a lot for us to constantly reconcile, and that's what I was alluding to earlier. And I think that's actually where pastoral care can come in. Like, how do you support people that wrestle not just with these questions intellectually, but also emotionally, mm-hmm. right? We, as yeah. especially speaking for physicians, I would say we, we carry a lot of, um, we carry people's hurts and burdens and challenges. Mm-hmm. We see some really horrific things and um, that um, if we don't have good spiritual care, can really influence, um, you know, how we function, maybe how we might even retreat or have yeah. doubt versus um, having um, having a loving, caring environment who actually gets how hard sometimes that work is and right. the difficult decisions we have to make yeah. with good um, integrity and consciousness in front of God. Yeah, I think sometimes when people go to doctors, so like my son is going to be getting two really awful surgeries this year. And... You know, doctor, the, I won't say his name, but the doctor we went to see, he didn't break down crying mm-hmm. in the meeting we had with him, you know? Right. And he's not supposed to. Right. You know what I mean? But I, I go away thinking that he just compartmentalizes it. He doesn't, he doesn't care. But he probably does care. Mm-hmm. And he's going to have to, like, do something terrible to my son to make his life better. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yep. And I just, so I think sometimes we think, oh, doctors, you know, they just, 
After a while, they just get used to it. It's like blood. You just don't faint anymore. Right. When it's like, it really is. You see some, you see the worst, the worst things, you know, you're kind of like, why did God allow this genetic deformity to happen? Right. Right. He could have, couldn't he had like, just not let that DNA mutation happen like that. Yep. And I find that oftentimes folks like that, they have, like they struggle with the same problem, problem of suffering. Right. But their version of it is not exactly the same version as the average 17-year-old high school student. Right. Yeah, yeah I think that's true. I, to some extent, you do compartmentalize it. Like, you can't, you know, feel Shoot, emotionally I, I broken. I compartmentalize <laughs> it. <laughs> right. As right. a pastor, right. I have to. I think there are a lot of parallels between doctoring and pastoring, but, you know, that's and counseling, conversation. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, right. you can't feel that way all the time, but yeah. there are, I mean, there are times when you see things that are really bad and it hits you. There's see times when you see things that are sort of run of the mill bad mm-hmm. and it hits you too. Yeah. It's yeah. yeah. And then or I suppose both of you work with kids. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Like yeah. you like bone when you're a bone marrow oncologist, pediatric bone marrow oncologist, <laughs> yeah. that means you're dealing with kids who are sick. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. You know? Definitely pretty intense situations and you know for the most part probably one of the hardest things a parent can ever go through yeah, in absolutely. their lifetime. And, yeah. and facing some really difficult situations. Yeah. It's also very rewarding. I think that is the, that's the other part that always comes back. Yeah. There is a huge reward and a blessing to walk alongside those people. Yeah. And actually, uh, I continually to remind myself, how does that look like for me to express Jesus and what I do yeah. beyond my medical knowledge? And that is um, yeah. because my medical knowledge has only so much right i had it has limitations and that is um that's the biggest that's the biggest part of it all yeah yeah that's that's why i hedge a little bit or like when you say like scientists are really busy and people should know that about scientists like the thing that sustains you through a lot of that is being involved in the church is having relationships within the church and you don't want to assume that like science people don't need that because I think that's setting physicians and scientists and people up for failing because of those things for not being able to cope with all the stuff that they're seeing. Do you think people who work in science are more emotionally repressed than the average person because they're used to thinking analytically about everything. And so they deal with their emotions analytically. Yeah. I don't know if repressed is the right word, but there is that general compressed. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Less emotionally informed. I don't know. There, okay. Yeah, you naturally, I think, get a set of people who probably is less emotional to begin with or mm-hmm. less controlled by their emotions. Anyway. I have found that the doctors I've pastored have not been more emotionally healthy than the other people. They're yeah. smart. They're yeah. smarter than and a lot of other people, and they are super competent. That's, yeah. And they can come up with really good reasons for things. But they also, they can come up with really good reasons for why they treat their spouse terrible. You know, because yeah. they're really smart. Yeah. You know yeah. what I mean? Yep. It, it, like, it's not like they're worse. It's just yeah. like... Smart doesn't save you. You know what I mean? So true. Yeah. Uh, But I think the biggest obstacle for that is we are so um, trained and careful to use, but I think in a way indoctrinated, right? Using our our intellectual function Mm -hmm. that uh, we definitely have the danger of not tapping into our intuition, Mm -hmm. listening to the Holy Spirit, really tuning into that uh, that part, which is critical, important, and Mm -hmm. and just uh, in just staying sort of uh, just frontal and intellectual. Mm -hmm. uh, And there's huge opportunities that can be missed personally in mm-hmm. our profession in any way and in spiritual growth of course so yeah. i think that is one of the biggest uh 
what I see biggest challenges probably. And I yeah. see that with um, not just with a faith-based physician. I coach a lot of non, uh, non-believers in the academic world. And, and uh, that part, shutting off that constant uh, intellectual part, um, is really, uh, is really a, a skill that we need to relearn. Mm-hmm. I, th- I feel like the profession has tried to do a little bit better job of that in recent years. Yeah. In some ways, it's gotten worse with the, with the medical software because now doctors never look at me. You know what I mean? Because they're just typing into their Epic software stuff right. and then they just give me a thing that's over. But I have noticed, though, that like, they'll, like, they'll do their the intellectual thing and be like, okay, here's the thing. This is what we're going to do. And then they'll be like, okay, now I'm talking to a person. It feels like there's been some coaching in yeah. the medical profession over the last 15 years maybe. It's like, okay, Yes, make your thing. But then like, hey, this is a human and this is their first time with leukemia. Yeah. You know, it's like you're a two thousandth, but it's their first time. It's like whenever I do pre marriage counseling or I, or I do or I do marriage counseling and they come in with the same problem, I've done like I have to always be like, Okay, this is my ten thousandth time with mm-hmm. this, but it's their first. Right. You know? Yeah, absolutely. I mean the that stuff is built into, you know, the medical curriculum through medical school and residency too. That being said, it is sort of hard to teach that into yeah. being part of someone's practice. Some oh, yeah. of that is just the particular person you're getting and what their other events are. Yeah. Okay, so let's let's talk a little bit about what we learned in the books. Yeah. Okay. So, what are some way? What did you learn in the books? Like, what, what did did you learn anything about what it means as a Christian to understand humanity or what it means to be a human? As you read these books and thought about what you already thought. You know, one of the, maybe the main thing I took away is not really a new thing I learned, but just a good reminder. Like, I think the foundation of understanding what it means to be human comes from what you have in Genesis 1. You know, I help out with the three and four-year-olds. Laura and I do Awana uh, Cubbies. And so you have... God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Mm-hmm. And that, I think, is the spot from which we understand what it means to be human. Yeah. We're created by God it's in like, his image. It's this incredibly, it's kind of like vague in one sense, but it's also specific enough to sort of ground a lot. Yeah. You have all the key parts. Mm-hmm. God created man, so man was made. Mm-hmm. In his own image. Yeah. So we're the things in creation that are the most like God or the mm-hmm. most reflect him. And man and woman. Yep. So both genders. So yep. it, being a man or a woman isn't what makes you in the image of God. It's what right. we share. Right. Yeah. What about you, Ika? Yeah, I would I would say I echo that. Um, you know, going through the books was, uh, was interesting because there was so much... Um, so many concepts um, from an intellectual perspective, like mm-hmm. how I interpreted them or read through it. But it comes back down to uh, was interesting in the discussion that actually everybody had sort of a basic fundamental. What you said in the beginning, we were very different, but we are also very similar. Mm-hmm. Uh, and actually came down to very similar conclusions just mentioned. I mean, for me, it was the same thing. The end of the day, um, we can think about it a lot, 
but it boils down to the simplicity where within there is also a lot of beauty and mm-hmm. and it it stems from genesis i mean that's where it all starts and it's funny because after we went through the series i sort of uh inadvertently took the opportunity to study that some more um and and it is fascinating that so much all the foundation is right there in those first few pages. Yeah. So I think it's fundamental for us as uh, as believers, for me as a, as physicians as well, but fundamental as faith based people to say, let's revisit this frequently uh, beyond the uh, what what you're just mentioning the Sunday school right. teaching. Right, it isn't a pretty picture of you know um, the seven day creation. It is really a fundamental understanding yeah. how marvelous in all its aspect God created everything perfectly, and obviously we know what happened afterwards the sinfall. But that is um, that's very moving. Mm-hmm. It's it's beautiful in the same way. So, yeah. Yeah. great reminder. It, was there anything from the books or what we talked about that you were like, you know, this needs to be more prominent in the church? Like this this thing here. I mean, obviously, what you guys just said is it should be an example of that. But there, was there anything where it's like it was it didn't seem like a big issue, but you're like, okay, this feels lost in the shuffle, and it's important. Most fascinating thing for me was um, being somebody who got more interested in, you know, the subconscious mind, how our mind works. And I'm not a neurologist, but I like to learn how uh, how people think and uh, how it has helped me. It was fascinating to see that other people had similar questions coming Mm -hmm. from different uh, backgrounds. And I think that is a critical, important part, because if we understand uh, created in the image of God, that we have, you know, a conscious thinking mind, that we have that intuition, the Holy Spirit, the the soul, and that deciphering all these things out and helping us understand how we, in a broken, sinful world, and with a, us as sinful people, you know, work in these concepts, and perhaps also how they might be broken. Obviously, since sinful, they don't function properly anymore perhaps our emotions and how we think so that was fascinating to me and i think something that i would uh love to see more of because i think it helps at the core of the people we had a you know um psychologist there we had social workers there Mm -hmm. right that tackle these fields from their angles and was very clear how prominent and important that work is yeah i think one of the things that i've seen is there was a well we went to the thing in at trinity they talked about how like you know, when I was in seminary, people talked about how the doctrine that people were losing the, their handle on was the doctrine of sin, that we were we were sinful. And that, like without that moral seriousness and recognition, you couldn't really engage in redemption and turn to God as he is. And that now it's actually backtracked a step further where like we're losing our grapple on what a human being is. Yeah. And it's partly this issue of like that we're made in God's image and what that would mean. That is like a teleological view of human beings. Like we're made for something. We have a nature that we need to discover as opposed to expressive individualism. We are whatever we say we are. And the most important thing is to look inside of ourselves and then express it. That's what it means yeah. to be a human being. But like in addition to that, there's that whole mental question of like, what are we as minds or as beings? Like, are we just our neurology firing or are we, do we have this reciprocating relationship between mind and brain where mind is not reducible to brain? Right. And, but it's not just merely supervenient that it's like mind and brain are the same thing. We just don't know it. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so one of the things that we talked a little bit about is um, what is sometimes called neurodeterminism that, that by understanding that we have neurons in brains, 
and we know that our brains do things, then is that just all that's happening? Like our brains are doing things and we're, we think we're making decisions, but we're really just witnessing. Like in a sense, we're like, it's almost like we're this observer where we think that we're the active actor, but we're not. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so I think that question of neurodeterminism affects our view of what a human being is. It definitely affects the counseling field. Mm-hmm. And it, it affects our understanding of ourselves in two really major ways. And I'm going to talk about this in the series, but I, I, yeah. this is your opportunity to, to weigh in. Yeah. A, what are human beings really capable of? How responsible are we for our, ourselves? Like to what extent can we be something mentally? And then secondly, how healable are we? If our brain, quote, brain, quote, mind has been harmed, traumatized, hurt, to what extent are we fixable? To what extent can we heal? Or, or do we understand this as, no, your injuries go into your neurology, your, your neurology holds it in place, and it can, it can compartmentalize your pain so that you can still function, but it's very, very difficult or impossible to heal. Or if it's healing, we have to do something to your brain so that you heal, like give you a medication, do something that works in your brain, but not your consciousness, because that's, that's just a, 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 um, like a mystery anyway. It's, but, you know, it's probably not. So anyway, um. I know you guys have both thought about this some, but mm-hmm. how would you talk about, how would you talk to people who live in a world where they're kind of like, you know, all this stuff we're learning about brains. Like, you know, you say something to a person, a certain part of their brain lights up and then they have an idea and you're like, yeah, I already knew you were going to say that. You, like, has has our ability to image the brain like wrecked our ability to believe that we are choosers? <laughs> uh, some people would argue yes, but I would argue no. So, you threw out a lot of questions there, but uh, maybe I can talk for a bit. Um, yeah, if you could give us an answer about, like, about yeah. a minute, maybe? Yeah, yeah. So, right, the short answer is all of those things are open questions, which mm-hmm. is another way of saying mysteries. Mm-hmm. Um, so neuroscience, you know, there is so much that we know that we haven't known in the past. Mm-hmm. Like, it is amazing how much has been learned. And there's so much more that we don't know. Yeah. Um, and... I, science, I think, always lives in that place where you're always building more and more objective knowledge about the world around us. And then as you do that, you discover there are more and more gaps between the things that you do know. Mm-hmm. And neuroscience is no exception to that. Yeah. I don't think you're ever going to hit a time when, where you say, okay, we've learned everything we need to know about the brain and we're done. Like, yeah. That's it's not going to happen, I think. So uh, as far as brain-mind relationships go, um, there are some clear ways where, you know, we are beings that are physical and spiritual, right? Mm-hmm. The Bible teaches that. Um, and, right, you can, that's the same thing as saying we're be or similar to it's saying... Hi- it's highly observable, too, right? Right, right. Like, if you don't have a Snickers bar, you can get real hangry, and that messes with your soul, <laughs> you know? Right. And then, you know, when you do things to the brain, there are specific ways you can see that happen that are even more interesting. Like, you can stimulate certain parts of the brain, and, like, your arm will twitch, or you mm-hmm. can stimulate certain parts, and you will see certain things. Yeah. So, you know, in the conference we went to, they were arguing that, you know, the brain is not a computer... But there are ways where it sort of is. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I don't know that you totally want to throw out that analogy. It is partly a computer. Yeah. Yeah. That's some of what it's doing. Now, the mind is not a computer. And how those things relate, again, are complex. Mm -hmm. Um, So, right. In in regard to the question, like, um, for traumas that we have, are those things wired into us? Or are those things... um, you know, can you, can they be totally healed without doing anything to the neurology? 
you know, again, we probably can't answer that question. There are probably a lot of cases where both of those things are true. Mm -hmm. The brain is affecting the mind and the mind is affecting the brain. You know, cognitive behavioral therapy was sort of a revolution in psychology at one point. Mm -hmm. The thought that, oh, okay, maybe we shouldn't just try to change people's behaviors. Maybe the patterns of thought they're actually having are important Mm -hmm. and we should change those instead. And maybe they can do it. Right. Which would assume that the mind is more than the brain. Yeah. 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 Um, right. So that's an idea that the church has taught for a very long time. That right. Psychology came through, you know, like yeah. 1800 years later. But right. that, that's good. So there are yeah. ways where that's true. And but there are other ways, too. You know, if you look at patients who have certain kind of brain damage or that mm-hmm. sort of thing, there are changes that can happen in their personality because of that. Yeah. And it seems pretty clear that that's related to problems with the underlying um, structure of their brain. And you probably you yeah. can't. Just, I've I've always found that idea fascinating because on one level you're kind of like okay you, the mind is more the brain but mm-hmm. but then you see you find somebody who's like it was really a rough character mm-hmm. so well th- there was this there was this movie years ago with Harrison Ford it was, I think it's called Regarding Henry okay where he's it. like this like he's just a scumbag of a man mm-hmm. like just everybody's an object to him and he goes into the cigarette store and he gets shot in it in the head mm-hmm. but he doesn't die mm-hmm. and he, so he has this major head brain trauma and so he comes to rehab and he's just like softer kinder gentler he's intelligent but and so it, it's kind of like he's like a different guy now yeah right like it and so you wonder like okay wait if you take a person who's a jerk like a terrible person and you knew the right things to do to their brain could you make them a nice person and what would that mean for things like salvation or being transformed by the yeah. power of the spirit like could we could we do that as a brain surgery and <laughs> Like seventy years, you know what I mean? Can we can we make people nice? Right, right, and, and like that's I think it's an interesting question right. because it some is. some yeah. brain damage clearly makes some people nicer at least on one level. I don't know if that necessarily means they would not be tempted to lie in the future, yeah, or like do other wicked things. But like to see like sort of changes that you wish that you could persuade somebody to make in their life, and then they are hurt, and it like happens right that's kind of an odd yeah i think it's more the exception that things go in that direction where you have an injury and like it evens things out you know probably more often there are behavioral problems that come after those sorts of injuries um but yeah i you know i'm you see those changes i don't think you can fix problems that way you know but you know in psychology you know you i suspect though that there are people on the cutting edge of neuropsychology that are hoping oh yeah to get there oh i'm sure so you know in at least like that they could fix pedophilia or um a murderous rage or like that sort of thing yeah so in in neurosciences in general you know many people start for with the you know a uh, naturalistic worldview that there is no god the physical world is what there is and that's what defines sort of everything that happens Mm -hmm. um if you start from that point, then that's a reasonable way to think about things. Yeah. Um, you know, and again, they look at human beings the same way the rest of us do. Like, clearly people have brains. Clearly we have minds or this conscious experience. The two seem to be closely related. If God or spiritual things aren't part of that equation, then, yeah, obviously stuff comes from the physical substrate. And if you do the right things to the physical substrate, then... You know, in theory, you could. In theory, things will go the way they if should. It's not so infinitely complicated that you can't. Okay, right. I, th- I want to let you finish up on neurodeterminism. You're going to read something, yeah, and then I'm going to swing over to you, Inga, about 
are there are things happening like in the scientific and medical fields that the church just doesn't seem to be paying any attention to that maybe it would be good if they did you know yeah yeah so i think uh for neurodeterm neurodeterminism is probably one example of uh, how a naturalistic world you can potentially be dangerous. So you keep taking this idea, right, that it's just the physical substrate that matters mm-hmm. and that determines everything about what we do. Um, so a number of people in the neurosciences have, you know, studied to look for ways that say, oh, see here, the brain is doing certain things that are causing you to make decisions. And so your decisions aren't really your own decisions. Mm-hmm. Free will is just an illusion and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. There are sort of two dangers to that worldview. You know, one is just in how you look at other people. You know, you might take a set of people who have a certain starting point and say, oh, you're just destined to make bad decisions. So I've, like, I've, I've heard people talk about the potential for future permanent incarceration of people that are highly likely to commit crimes. And I've also talked to counselors that have no expectation that social workers in particular, no expectation these people are capable of change at all. Right. Yeah. Especially people who are poor. Yes. And have made a number of bad decisions from our perspective. Yes. And some of that, you know, is, you know, probably being jaded uh, Mm -hmm. based on past experience, but specifically saying that I can tell this person should go to jail now just because it's going to happen later anyway is in my mind, a very scary idea Mm -hmm. um, and a very, uh, an idea that's not compatible with what the Bible teaches about justice, at least, and about the human person, right? Right. right. Yeah. So, so that's one danger of neurodeterminism. And the other is how you treat yourself. Right? The other <laughs> is how you treat yourself or how you see yourself. So I've had I can't be held responsible for this. Well, yeah. right. So that's yeah. one. That's one danger. But maybe even the larger danger is there's a sort of despair that comes out of that when okay. you start to believe, you know. My mind is really determining what I'm doing, and I don't really have any control over what's happening. So yeah, let me, as a good example of where that could potentially go, uh, this is an excerpt from That Hideous Strength by C.S. Lewis. The third book in C.S. Lewis's space trilogy. It's excellent. Which has almost no relationship to the first two books. It's it's like two Uh, books and a third. I mean, there's some shared characters, but it's... We can argue about that later. Um, so there's a character, Dr. Frost, who's sort of your quintessential, um, naturalistic worldview scientist, Mm -hmm. neurodeterminist. There is no such thing as a free will. And this was written in the fifties or sixties. Yeah. Which is 1950s or sixties. So, right. So like uh, 70 years ago. Yeah. And yet you're really like, oh, that could be written now. Yeah. 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 Okay. So here we go. Frost had left the dining room a few minutes ago after Wither. He did not know where he was going or what he was about to do. For many years, he had theoretically believed that all which appears in the mind as a motive or intention is merely a byproduct of what the body is doing. But for the last year or so, since he had been initiated, so they got in with these uh, essentially fallen angels, he'd begun to taste uh, as fact what he had long since held as theory. Increasingly, his actions had been without motive. He did this and that, he said thus and thus, and he did not know why. His mind was a mere spectator. He could not understand why that spectator should exist at all. He resented its existence, even while assuring himself that resentment also merely was a chemical phenomenon. The nearest thing to a human passion which still existed in him was a sort of cold fury against all who believed in the mind. There was no tolerating such an illusion. There were not, and must not be, such things as men. 
Uh, all right. So then basically as things are winding down, he winds up locking himself into a room, grabbing lots of combustibles and setting the room on fire as a way of committing suicide. So uh, let's see. We finish off with... Uh, so he locked himself in this room, poured out the petrol, and threw a lighted match in the pile. Not till then did his controllers allow him to suspect that death itself might not, after all, cure the illusion of being a soul. Nay, it might prove the entry into a world where that illusion raged infinite and unchecked. Escape for the soul, if not for the body, was offered to him. He became able to know, and he simultaneously refused knowing, that he had been wrong from the beginning, that souls and personal responsibility existed. He half saw, but he wholly hated. The physical torture of the burning was not fiercer than his hatred of that. With one supreme effort, he flung himself back into his old illusion. In that attitude, eternity overtook his him, as sunrise in the old tales overtakes and turns them into unchangeable stone. So that's sort of a frightening picture, I think, of where that line of thought can lead. Yeah. Man. Okay. Yeah, we'll talk a little <laughs> bit more about this in a couple of the sermons and in one of the, I think at least one of the one of the episodes of the the Living Room Live, which will be an event you can go to in addition to the series. Yeah. But um so okay, I'm trying to we need to get Inga in here, right? So so what is like Sorry. Inga, as you as you have been thinking this through, like I know you were saying before we got on here that you're you're um starting a podcast to try to improve stuff in your field. Like what are some of the things that the church either could know or support in terms of people working in their fields to try to improve it, or that are kind of like on the horizon in these fields that the church should care about? Like, for example, maybe like bioethical questions or stuff like that. Like, what are some of the things you're like, you know, one of the ways to care about people in the sciences is to care about the stuff they're facing that's spiritual in nature, whether it's a sclerotic system, whether it's bioethical questions, whether it's their own spirituality and, pr- and preparation as spiritual disciples for the work. Like, mm-hmm. Yeah. Go wherever you want with that. Yeah, yeah, interesting question. So I, I don't think there's sort of one scientific thing to look to and that I want to highlight here to say, well, that's an interesting thing you should be all aware of or mm-hmm. learn about. Uh, I think it comes to the more fundamental questions again, bringing back to just like we, we talked about, you know, the, the mind and and um, the nervous system or the um, neurodeterminism. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think these are the very fundamental questions that come back uh, about um, um, yeah, bioethics, I think, um, in, in terms of stem cell research. Um, mm-hmm. uh, those are just some examples. Um, uh, again, the field is evolving. As I said earlier, science is only as good as today and the information mm-hmm. we have today, and it evolves rapidly. And our viewpoint might change over time as things are evolving. Uh, just like yeah. you gave that example that is actually age old. I think the biggest thing, so I think it's good for people who are interested in sort of having some basic understanding what is out there in terms of the uh, conversations mm-hmm. uh, in, in terms of uh, ethical medical questions um, but the deeper issue is really I think looking for, for us as a overall the system of academia of healthcare that um, that is broken in many ways mm-hmm. right and um, the last uh, couple of years have brought this more to light 
of what was already, I think, broken, mm-hmm. um, uh, just under the pressure we have been functioning. And I think that's an important thing to understand. It goes back to your very early question, you know, what does our life look like uh, daily? There's mm-hmm. a lot of things um, we juggle, right, as a physicians, a physician scientists to keep up all the balls in the air, right? The science yeah. and the medicine and the patients. Mm-hmm. Um, I think um, understanding that we are functioning in a in a very broken system and that there is a lot of hurt. There is, um, I think, amongst physicians, certainly a high suicide rate, mm-hmm. um, a lot of pain and despair. Uh, and that doesn't come from the part, um, I believe, that, you know, we are serving people and we're seeing a lot of sickness. And a lot of it comes from the part of working, trying by our values and why we got into this profession in the first place, working on our highest standards right. and working with excellence and with love and with care, which is um, often very contrary or in misalignment to how we function every day. And that is where brokenness comes in. That mm-hmm. is where burnout comes in. And I think that is something uh, for for the church or the community to understand um, that is that is helpful to have yeah. that support network. Does that, if that makes any yeah, sense. Yeah, I think that's good. Let me, I'm going to ask one more question that may sound like redundant, but it's kind of like the last question. So mm-hmm. just give you guys a last swing yeah. at the ba- swing at sure. the ball. <laughs> um, if, w- for people who maybe aren't in these fields, what are, are ways that you think the local church can better embrace or learn from or care for members of the medical or scientific professions? Like, is it, is it just like, don't treat us as special, just like, include us like we we just we need the same things everybody else needs i think there's probably that but is are there are there are there some things where like the church because like i've had like single people on for example so i asked them the same question how can we love single people they're just like well don't pretend we don't exist you know that kind of thing yeah. <laughs> but they have a number of pointers are there any pointers you would give for like um how do we how does the church do we treat these folks as brothers and sisters in christ so they feel like they're bro- our brothers and sisters in christ it sounds so simple and uh, it's kind of, you can almost chuckle at it, but I think um, having real, what I come to appreciate, having real prayer support, mm-hmm. th- this comes back all to the basic things, but having prayer support of, you know, when we go in there and do our things, we don't do it on our own terms, right? We, we, we put our, hopefully we put our ego to the side and all that at the end of the day, it comes always down to a, a spiritual thing, right? Mm-hmm. It's a spiritual warfare wherever we function in the society mm-hmm. and having that prayer support. We, we don't walk on water just because we went to medical school. We are as broken and as limited uh, with limitations yes. and everybody else. And um, and um, so I think that is really important, um, carrying those, like I mentioned earlier, emotional and spiritual burdens, mm-hmm. uh, having wisdom, having intercession for actual really receiving wisdom because mm-hmm. as I mentioned earlier sometimes we have to make incredible difficult decisions mm-hmm. yeah. and um, and there was uh, oftentimes what I start to appreciate and have to sometimes feel like I have to tell my patients I tell you all the bad things because I sort of supposed to have to right mm-hmm. I have to tell you all the seriousness about the diagnosis and the treatment but it goes back to what we talked about the brain earlier also sometimes I want to just take a big eraser and say, forget all that. Because if you feed on that fear, mm-hmm. that is really hard to go through this process. Um, yeah. So um, uh, it's yeah. a big tension. And I think having, uh, I've been surprised over the years reading stuff about cancer and particularly that like 
the mindset of patients makes a huge difference in their recovery and them just fighting the disease and, and the years of that they live afterwards. That like one of the most important questions is how, how are you mentally with this? Like, how are you, are you, do you want to live? You know? So, and I found that with a lot of people struggling with different diseases, but I, I heard it's like, it's pretty prominent in cancer that like, your mindset makes a big difference. Huge difference. And I've always appreciated this. I've done this now for decades. The families who have a mindset of, they come in with a, a certain mindset of, we're going to conquer this. Mm-hmm. We're just going to roll with punches, so mm-hmm. to speak. Um, there's families that have tremendous diagnosis and difficulties and mm-hmm. walk through them more easily. And the path seems so much easier despite the diagnosis or worse mm-hmm. prognosis. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe hit with every complication under the sun compared to somebody who has probably maybe sometimes even not such a severe case sort of in in my book speaking but struggles a lot more i cannot tell you how critical important um the spiritual aspect the mindset is and there is zero support in the hospital for and that's something we are absolutely lacking when we Mm -hmm. are we are i think to some degree limiting healing limiting um, patients' recovery on all fronts because we are working in such a scientific field where left a lot of the spiritual aspects or even those mental mindset aspects out. And social workers do the best they can, but there is not enough support for them and there's not enough people trained. So going back to the good old ministries and going to the hospital and praying for people Mm -hmm. or praying for the physicians... It's a good thing to do. Yeah, I think I think a broad application of that is just, you know, those of you in small groups, you know, when you find out somebody in your small group is sick with a major disease, like you have a huge opportunity there. And that, that, that isn't necessarily a question of how do we support doctors and people in the sciences. But one of the things that you're saying is like, yeah, when if somebody if somebody has a profound sickness, like, like you can have a will to fight when you are diagnosed with cancer and then you get hit with that first line of chemo and it can break you fast. And having people who are just like, they help you with the throwing up and they try to get you to eat something and they just, you know, they're just there. You have a place to go on Wednesday you need to get dressed for, you know, those kinds of things I think can make a really big difference and really help doctors Mm -hmm. do their best job so that that person has their best chance, you know. And you said another important thing earlier that, um, that Jesus actually asked the question. You said, well, do you actually want to get better? Do you want to get healed? And sometimes perhaps emotional, it it seems like such a silly question. You might think, well, everybody wants that, right? But actually not everybody perhaps does, or Mm. not to the degree that we think, because maybe there's other hurt and pain. And Jesus asked, Mm -hmm. well, do you want to be healed? And then if you do, then, you know, go pick up a mat and go. we sometimes have to remember and be very attuned to listening and tuning in that there might be other obstacles to healing than just the physical part we see as physicians. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm thinking about where you're coming from, Andrew, and just the church and disability. Mm-hmm. Like you see a lot to say with kids with disabilities yeah. and I know you work a lot with seizures, but there's a lot of, there's a lot of neural dif- neuro difficulties yeah. that kids struggle with. And, and Madison's like kind of a hot spot for that because we have some, we have pretty good support for uh, autism and right. autism spectrum here. Uh, I don't know if you want to hit something else, but I know that that's a really significant, the church often really struggles with helping people with disabilities. If you haven't been hit with that yourself, it's really hard to care a lot. Yes. 
Yeah, it's, I mean, the church, I think, so I think maybe the same principle for how the church reaches out to people with disabilities is similar to how the church reaches out to doctors, which is just... Tell, me, tell me if you need something. Yeah. Like, yeah, like, you know, they're human beings like anyone else. You know, the life circumstances are a little different in some ways, mm-hmm. but, you know, you can minister to any of those people by like, hey, be a part of our small group. Hey, yeah. I haven't seen you in the small group in like six months. Like, how's yeah. life going? What's yeah, it's, in like, anything oh, I can do for you? Yeah. Yeah. In almost every relationship, we don't really realize that we are always accommodating other people, mm-hmm. you know, in some way or another. And so people who are disabled in some ways, they just feel like kind of outside of how much accommodation I should do. Right. But in some ways, you know, the basic physical accommodation for somebody who's like in a wheelchair, for example, is not necessarily much more than like a, like a extra grace required person who's real dramatic, Mm -hmm. but you wouldn't really thought that for that person, you know? And I think churches, I think, I mean, I remember when Lex and I had a disabled child ourselves, we started seeing disability people struggle with it because we had experienced it you know and I, I know it's hard for people to do that but i mean i think it's part of the fundamentals of growing in love to be able to see other people to embrace that like the tragic nature of life how everybody is fighting a great battle mm-hmm. and they're trying not to give into the darkness so to speak yeah. both metaphorically and literally yeah and that man any cup of cold water you give in my name jesus says you'll never ever yep. lose your reward for that yeah you know and i think that you guys have to do that work. Like you, just, I mean that they're there that you give people is yep. like, and sometimes times as important as your, um, as the technical thing you did just before that, mm-hmm. you know? And I think, I think sometimes we do ministry at the church and we forget how human it's supposed to be, you know? Yeah. So you have any other last swings at that? Uh, one other thought. So, um, for ways that you can sort of reach out to people who are in the sciences, mm-hmm. um, the church and science in general have in common that they're both very concerned actually with what is true about the world. Yeah. Um, so that is a good common ground. They have different sorts of um, presuppositions that they're working from, yeah. but they're not entirely incompatible. So, you know, if you are around someone who's a scientist and you're not a scientist yourself in the church, you know, Ask them what they think about things. Like, ask them, hey, like, what do you know about science that pertains to, like, creation or that sort of thing? Mm-hmm. You know, don't just avoid the question assuming that, like, science is going to tell you something that's anti-Christian that you shouldn't hear. But mm-hmm. draw out some of what those people believe. You'll probably learn stuff, and it will probably build parts of your faith, too. Yeah. The, the flip side of that is thinking they have all the answers when scientists are saying things about like how god is or what science tells them about how god is be a little careful with some of those claims there are many people in science who overreach what can actually be said from like what they know to be true so one philosopher we we were we met during the trinity thing said there is almost nothing in neuroscience about the nature of the human mind that doesn't require some kind of philosophical framing right. to say what it means about human right. consciousness. Yes. And all that framing is philosophy. It's not science. Right. Right. Yeah. Yep. So you can, right. And if you have the wrong assumptions, you can come to the wrong conclusions. <laughs> so I I've sent you a that. poster. Yeah. There's oh, this yeah. poster about um, someone did an fMRI study of a dead salmon. Uh-huh. So they showed it faces and then non-faces and showed yeah. that when it saw the faces 
part of its brain lit up in a way that didn't light up for the other ones. Uh-huh. Now, obviously, that is not a correct statement, right? So the yeah. point of the study was you have to be careful when you're doing MRI studies, since you're making lots of comparisons in the imaging. If you don't account for those things correctly, mm-hmm. you can get the wrong results. So I don't want you to come away thinking that, you know, like all science and fMRI studies are nonsense because that's not true. But if if somebody just like drifts off for a second and was like, I like horses, like you could get another (laughs) part of the brain like lighten up in your, and if you don't like account for like how that could happen, you could get some weird. Yeah. 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 So, right. Again, listen to scientists, ask them what they say. Don't ignore science. But when it's making overarching sweeping statements about what's true of the universe, maybe be a little careful with. Yeah. And and remember, we all do that. Like, there's lots of people who get ahead of the ponies, so to speak. Yeah. But I think, yeah, yeah. It reminds me of this this statement Lewis makes in um, Men Without Chess in uh, The Abolition Man, where he says, we we got the work of of amateur philosophers when we should have been getting the work of professional grammarians. Right. And sometimes we get the work of amateur philosophers when we should have gotten the work of professional biologists or something like that. And, um, you just, you like just recognizing when somebody's doing philosophy and when they're doing science is, is real difficult, I think for people, Mm -hmm. which is why we want to hold that, which is why sometimes you guys are the ones who could say, okay, that that right there, that wasn't science. I mean, that was, that was based on scientific knowledge, but that was philosophy that you just heard. And it may be true. It may be false. Yeah. And I think, especially I, I mean, all these brain scans things that people are hearing about popularly, I think it can be very confusing to them mm-hmm. because it sounds like, well, if you're, you were scanning the brain, I mean, that's gotta be right. You know, yeah. even if it's a dead salmon. All right. So do you guys have fun doing this? Are you good? So, Oh, I, absolutely. You know, you guys could start a, like a people in the sciences discussion group, like a <laughs> monthly book thing or something, you know, and I could come sometimes. <laughs> that could be fun. Yeah. I think that was, as I said earlier, I think the fun, most fun part was, you know, interacting mm-hmm. with other people, actually figuring out who they are and having some uh, conversations about the questions we yeah. sort of wrestle with. Um, that was that was really great. Yeah. Yeah. It was neat seeing how everybody, it was a very different group. Like even mm-hmm. the medical doctors were all, do, all doing everything at different times of their careers, yep. focusing on different things. Yep. But it was great to see everybody. Everybody's pretty interested in trying to understand how our understanding of the human person would affect the way we help people and yeah. and love God. Okay, so well, thanks so much for being on this. Um, for those of you who have listened, we're um, this is part of the um, image series, and we're our goal over those six weeks is to try to help people better understand what it means to be a human person, to be made in God's image, and to embrace everything God um, wants us to understand about that, so that we can live beautifully in the world and become deeper disciples of Jesus. So guys, thanks so much for being on here. Thanks for being part of the the group, yeah. the um, the folks group, and for um, like enriching me so that hopefully I can be enriching towards the whole church. Yeah. Thanks, Nick. Thanks, Thank Nick. you. It's great fun. Yeah. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Engage and Equip podcast. If you have a podcast idea or a question you'd like answered on the podcast, send us an email at podcast at highpointchurch.org. If you'd like to find more episodes, you can go online to highpointchurch.org slash podcast. You can also find us on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Overcast, and other apps like those. We hope this episode is helpful to you as you grow in becoming a more substantive disciple and part of the local church. 
If this episode was helpful to you, rate or review us on Apple Podcasts or share this episode with a friend. Those are some of the best ways we have to reach new listeners. Until next time, thank you for listening to this episode of Engage and Equip.